Hi, and welcome to Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. That's me, and I have a fantastic interview coming your way with singer, actor, and now author Sam Harris, somebody I've always admired and finally got to meet. It's really terrific. But first, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I have a dream, and my dream is to make this podcast more than just a hobby. I'd like to make it my job. Other people have done it, and I want to do it too. So here's how you can help. You can tell your friends. You can write me a nice review on iTunes. And the most important thing at the moment is I need you to take an audience poll for me. It's on the Dennis Anyone Facebook page. Uh, Just scroll down the timeline and you'll see it. Um, It really helps me figure out who's listening. And so I can get maybe paired with an advertiser and I'll be well on my way. So if you would do that, I would be forever grateful. And uh, if you also want to help me keep the podcast free, there's a tip jar on the Dennis Anyone Facebook page on the left-hand column. Uh, any little bit helps and because um, I'm using a lot of storage now. There's so much good content. So um, before we get to the interview, I also want to let you know that the short film I worked on with Nadia Ginsburg and Glenn Gaylord called If We Took a Holiday is going to be playing all over the place. I'm going to rattle off the dates and you can learn more uh, details at If We Took a Holiday on Facebook. It's going to be Outfest Best of the Fest in Los Angeles on September 3rd the Austin Gay and Lesbian Film Festival on September 11th, Uh, the Long Beach Gay and Lesbian Film Festival September 13th, Chicago Film Festival uh, Reeling, that's on September 20th, the CMG Film Festival also in LA, that's also on September 20th. It's going to be in Fresno somewhere between the 17th and the 21st of September, and also in Seattle on Sunday, October 12th at their film festival. So, Again, learn more at If We Took a Holiday on Facebook. And if you're in any of those cities, come and check it out. All right, that's it. And without any further ado, here's my interview with Sam Harris. Enjoy it. Hey, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. And I'm so excited because I am here in the home of Sam Harris. And we're going to talk about his new book, Ham, and all kinds of other things. And I'm so excited to be here because I've been a fan since the Star Search days. Thank you. And uh, I love the book. I just finished it the other day, and it's just terrific. So I so appreciate that. Yeah. I lo- I, I, it's a whole new chapter, pardon the pun, and I love loved writing it. Right. Did you love writing it? Because writing, I've written a few books. I'm a writer. And sometimes it's fun, and a lot of times it's not fun at all. So did you enjoy the process of writing, or did you I, take to it naturally, or was I it kind of like... I love the process of writing. Really? Uh, well, I've, you know, I've Fuck written, you. I've written, <laughs> I've written for other... Medium, but this sure. is a lot, you know, for stage and television and stuff. But the book, as you know, is a whole different thing. I love yeah. how you casually say, I've written a few books. It's a, have, that's a huge deal. I know it is a huge deal. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's sort so. of the thing that everybody, you know, I don't you know how casually always, but it's like, well, I'm, yeah, I'm somebody going to write a book. I'm like, do you have any idea? You know, the <laughs> cool thing about it is that for me, I've had my ups and downs in my career and stuff, but that's something I did that no one could take away from me. And so yeah. when you kind of like, when you like feel like a loser, you're like, no. That exists. You can hold it. It's true. You can also buy it for a penny on Amazon. <laughs> a penny. A, literally a penny. <laughs> which is kind of a bummer unless you want, you need some for yourself to give people and then you're like, okay, I'm glad it's a Then a I can penny. buy them in bulk. Yeah. Hundreds. They get you on the shipping. <laughs> so literally one cent. But uh, well, I love the process. Um, yes, it was. It how was, long did it take? Well, you're going to hate me for this part. Um, I, I started it. I I didn't start it because I was going to write a, a book. Right. Um, my friend Frank Langella, who's a good friend, had just 
been encouraging me and saying, you really need, because he'd read other things I'd written, just some pieces and some stuff I'd written for other medium. He said, you need to be writing. You need to be writing. Yeah. And um, he said, just start, just write without expectation, without an idea of what it's supposed to be or do or sell. And I'm in show business. So everything I think of having been doing this, these long, many years um, is like, where am I going to sell it? What's it going to be? Yeah. Who's the market? Who's the audience? Who's going to buy it? And how am I going to pitch it? Who am I going to talk? And I really, truly divorced myself from that whole thing and just wrote. That was in, started in April of 2012. By June, July, I had a bulk yeah. And and Frank kept saying, don't let anybody, you know, send me stories, but don't start shopping this. Don't. Yeah. But I had enough to where I'm like, I want to see what other people are thinking. And I was reading pieces to a few friends. Right. And um, I sent it to a couple of friends who then sent it to a couple of book agents. And then I went to New York a couple of times to meet with book agents who were interested in it. I had a book agent by... Uh, in whatever, like August. Right. And I sold it to Simon Schuster gallery, Simon Schuster in September. And how much of it was done when you sold it? Um, 80%. Great. That's and great. And then maybe more. And then they wanted a few more things. And then we ended up, you know, editing a couple of others. But, and then I think I, t- I turned in the, everything by January of 13. Um, and, you know, of course then there's an editing process, Sure, but, um, it was done fairly quickly. That's great, though. Because it, it was time to do it, and it you were ready to, to do it. And I love doing it. I really love Was it cathartic? Was it pleasurable? Totally. Well, cathartic and pleasurable are two different things. I guess they're totally different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, it was both. Yeah. It was pleasurable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... Uh, writing is like music, too. Yeah. You know, it's, there's a rhythm. There's a, there's a voice. And I love words. I love punctuation. I love playing with the rhythm of the structure. Um, And then, you know, I had to go back and dig deeper on certain things. As you know, it's a humorous book, but not always so funny. Right. No, there's some stuff we'll get to. Um, It's called Ham Slices of a Life. Now, there's a pig on the cover. It's a pig's ass. It is. Did you cast the pig? Did you have any say in the pig? I... My vision... Because it's a really nice pig ass, it's a by lovely, the way. As pig asses go. <laughs> totally. And, and it's and, tactile. It's You can feel it. We're feeling it right now, listeners. I know. And you when you come off the ass, it goes smooth to yeah. the cover. So anyway. it's something that you can... It's sort of comforting. Yeah. Um, but no, my my image, my originally for the... I just want a slab of ham on the cover. I didn't yeah. want my face on it. I didn't right. want... You know, because it's a collection of stories. I didn't want it to feel like an autobiography. Right. It's autobiographical, but it's a collection. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted like a slab of ham. Yeah. Uh, but I know, again, at the low these many years, right. let people who know what they're doing do what they do. And yeah. then you play. So they played with a thousand different ideas that they didn't tell me. And then they sent me this. And I was like, oh, my God, this is great. Yeah. And then they sent me all the stuff they had done, which started with the slab of ham, yeah. which looked like a cookbook. Right. And then they did this sort of fantastical animated thing, which was wrong. And they ended up with this. I thought it was brilliant. It's perfect. Thanks. It's great. I, I had I, the same experience with my first novel. It's about friends living in L.A. And I thought it would be the Hollywood sign or whatever. And they sent me this image of this woman with eyelash flowers coming out of her eyelashes. Uh-huh. It was called Misadventures in the 213. Uh-huh. I had nothing really to do with my book. And I got but it was it, intriguing. And I, I, I got it and I was really confused. And then I sat it on the <laughs> I sat it on the table and I kept walking by and I sort of fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. And it was brilliant because 
It was really striking, really memorable, and it was always facing out when you entered the bookstore because uh, it was a face. Right. You know, and if there was like um, a review section in a magazine where they'd do four books, that was the cover they picked because it was. Right. It popped. It popped. And I was yeah. like, yes. So, so some people thought it was me. And I had an ass. You had a face. I had a face yeah. and you had an ass. But yeah. it's, it, all of that stuff is really fun. And it sounds like you had a great experience. They have been from, so from top to bottom. I, I love them. And the paperback comes out in October, which is Perfect. Like the next, you know. That's fun. Wave. Have you, what's the most random thing that came out of the book? Have you been in an, I was once in an airport and I saw a stranger reading it. I was on my oh, book tour. Yeah. It was like. Oh wow, you know, and I, I was like, "Hi," and you know, like, I'm like me. little this things is like, reading, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." This is me. So I think it's I, random. I'm not sure how specific the the oddest thing. Well, there are a couple of things. Um, one is that even though I've, I've I've always, my husband Danny always says, "When I want to know what's going on with you, I come see a show." Yeah, <laughs> because I always tell everything on stage. Um, so one odd thing, I suppose, is when people that I meet or refer to something in the book and I'm like, how do you know that? Like deep stuff. How do you, why do you know that? And then I think they're kind of like, it's a, a little sta- creepy, yeah. creepy, stalkery. And then I realize, no, 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 I actually wrote this in public. <laughs> it's published. It's out there. Yeah. 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 You know, the other odd thing that's come from this is, uh, the extension of this is when I was, when the first book came out in January and I was promoting it, it was my idea to promote it in the way I know how, which is to create a sort of theatrical thing. Sure. So rather than going and reading snippets, I did all that stuff too. But we did right. it in theaters, uh, and I plucked pieces from the book mm-hmm. to create a, a, a theatrical art. Right. I watched some of them on YouTube, and you can too, listeners. Yeah, some you of these, can. Yeah, they're but great. But the show show then became this uh, show that was sort of a, an extension of the book, but a different animal. And this is the odd thing that came out too, is... We know when I'm doing shows or concerts, first of all, when I'm doing a, a play, then, you know, I'm, I'm playing a character. Right. I imbue it with my experience and my stuff and my head and my substitutions and my whatever, but it's still something else. When I'm doing concerts and I'm telling stories or doing something, it's me, but there's still a little bit of a veil there. It's, uh, it's still a, a character, even though it's me. Right. When I'm doing this and reading this, or reading or telling these stories and it really is me it is so there's no there's no separation it's a much deeper richer scarier more naked experience than having the veil of playing a character and right. you know i there's nothing to substitute this is right. it this really happened yeah um which is wonderfully authentic but really makes me want to throw up yeah <laughs> So you're more nervous doing like going going and doing this kind of a thing than yeah, you would I'm doing, be con- yeah. doing a concert. Reliving. Yeah. You know, some yeah. of the uh, underbelly of the yeah. pig. Exactly. <laughs> now, you've had some crazy shit happen in your life. You your your family house burned down twice? Twice! When you were a kid. I was like trying to when the first time it happened, I was like trying to imagine what that would be like and uh-huh. you lose everything and how do you start again and you're right. a kid and and then, and then it fucking happened, it again. happened again. What does I, it do to you to lose, to have everything? Like, you know what's what? the residual I, of that? The residual of that is that you realize nothing matters. Stuff is... Stuff. Yeah. Stuff is stuff. Pictures are really important. It's right. nice to have those kinds of memories. But stuff is stuff. 
Yeah. And as long as you're okay. Yeah. Uh, and no one's been burned in the fire. Yeah. <laughs> it's stuff. And so it's very funny because like in our life now, you know, I, of course I, we have a child, so we're always taking thousands of pictures. Right. But Danny is, my husband, is always recording everything. Right. Everything. I mean, we go to the park. We play ball. We just like get in there with the phones. You take, and I am so – it's great that he, we have a record of this, mostly from him, because I'm kind of – it taught me to be sort of more present. I'm having the experience. It's in my head. We all know I can remember it because right. I regurgitated it on yeah. paper. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, uh, that's what it's given me. Yeah. It's yeah. really it's, – it's in me. Right. You know? Yeah. So, because that you that might be all you get to have when you go to your next house that burns right. down or whatever. Oh my god. Yeah. And you had a stranger die in your arms on I a did. street. I did. Holy shit! At one of your most vulnerable, vulnerable moments. Yeah. Uh, Talk a little about that. That is uh, in a story that is uh, primarily about Jerry Blatt, who was my mentor and director and friend and father figure. And a genius, a genius. He really taught me not only about performing and being authentic on stage, but really finding the art in life. Mm -hmm. I mean, just walking down the street. And he affected me more than, and influenced me more than any other single person. My craft, my perspective. Um, And uh, Jerry contracted AIDS and moved to Amsterdam and so, and it was a big secret. It was in the days of total, total taboo. And so we're talking eighties, nineties, eighties. Okay. And Jerry was really—he was the co-creator of Bette Midler's whole Divine Miss M persona and all of those concerts he directed and wrote. He was a genius. So Bette and I were the only ones who knew that Jerry was sick, and we were sworn to secrecy. Um, and we would fly back and forth and see him. But in the end, uh, I got the call. It's time. Got on a plane, got there, and missed his death by hours. And it so troubled me uh, uh, that I had missed this moment, this event, this the goodbye, that I couldn't get past it. Uh, all the richness that he had given me, I was stuck on not having been there. Like I had almost like I betrayed him in some way. And there were several memorials, and one in New. There was one in New York. And uh, that night after the memorial, I was in Jerry's apartment with several friends. And at like 2 o'clock in the morning, there was this dreadful, horrible, screeching, crashing sound. We were all fried and so tired and so emotional. And I don't know why. It was New York, whatever. Things happen. But I was drawn to leave the apartment and go. Because you heard the sound. Heard the sound. But it's, again, it's New York City. Hearing a crash outside the street, what? Yeah. Uh, You know someone's going to be there. But I went out and this... uh, this person had run his car into this light post and has crashed. And I got there in time to see the door open and this man sort of fall out of the car, uh, speckled with blood and glass in his face and, and sort of crawling up. And I, I pulled his body up. There were a couple of other people there and he seemed to be fine. I mean, he, I knew he was injured, but there was nothing gape, no arms missing or how old would you say he was in his 30s okay um and he laid in my arms and i and he sort of pulled himself up into my arms so he was on these steps 
uh, in the village. We were in the village. And he died. This stranger died in my arms. And what struck me, other than being so emotionally in, uh, vulnerable and everything in Jerry's memorial and having died, is that there was no momentous happening. There was no say, out- tell, tell the world, yeah. right. My last words are, there was no outreaching of hand. There was no heaving. There was no, he just died. And I, the last line of the chapter, I think, is, and I went back upstairs in the blood of another stranger, uh, the blood of a stranger, and remembered Jerry. And it allowed me to take the power and the onus off of this moment. And ex- the guilt that you've been feeling. The guilt and the moment of having For logistics. For logistics. For logistics, yeah. But the moment of what that was supposed to have been. Right. And being able to embrace what Jerry gave me. And also, in an odd and poetic way, be there for this person whom I didn't know, who died in my arms. Who but needed some human contact. When I was not there for Jerry mm-hmm. to die in my arms. So it was uh, powerful on... on uh, you know, as we talk about this, Dennis... We've already bringing up houses burning and people dying. I know, but there's there's lots of funny stuff in your book. A lot of funny in this. We're getting to that. (laughs) We were getting to that, but like that that's amazing. Did you ever find out anything about who this person was? I knew nothing. I waited until the ambulance came, and then I went back upstairs. Wow. Did you tell the people upstairs what had happened? Yes. Yeah. That must have been so surreal. It was. Yeah. Now, speaking of the funny things in your book... Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> yes! You write um, a good deal about your friend Liza Minnelli, and you tell the story of her wedding to the man who shall not be named. The man whose name shall go unmentioned. The man whose name shall not shall go unmentioned. And you break it down in very hilarious detail. It's star-studded. Yeah. I don't want to get God into... God knows two- there were 4,000 publications that... Yeah. reported on this wedding. Yes. But this was certainly from my own perspective. But the things you observe about it and the moments and the things are very specific and so funny. And what I wondered, was there anyone there that you could look at and connect eye contact who who got the craziness of it? Or were they, was everybody sort of, you couldn't do it with Liza because she was probably well, in the I, middle of I it. I did. You could do it with Liza. I mean, I could do it with Danny. Who's Danny was with you. Okay. Um, because you needed somebody but in I that actually, craziness. It happened during the wedding, too, at yeah. times with Liza, even though it was her wedding and she had other responsibilities. Right. There were connections of, oh, my God. Can you believe this? Oh, my God, this is happening. Because Michael Jackson was was yes. the best man. He was. And Elizabeth Taylor. Was the matron of honor. Matron of honor. They're both in their own. Completely in their worlds. Well, <laughs> Michael. They can't find the ring. Michael was in his sunglasses. And I think I say in the book... Uh, his skin was uh, whiter than an Irishman who'd been locked in a basement his entire life or something like that. Anyway, uh, yes. I should be able to quote myself. <laughs> um, and just sort of tittered to himself at these internal jokes. And he was not present at all. He was yeah. just in his own Michael Michael planet. And then there was Liz Taylor, who basically sort of passed out. She just fell asleep. She, yeah. when we, we were asked to lower our heads in prayer. We, we did. And she never came back up. She never came back up. Until she was sort of smushed to get the ring, which she couldn't find. She pulled out her bag. She pulled out, you know, like a Milky Way and a compact. <clears throat> she couldn't. <laughs> it's find a whole ring. window into her she world. She found the ring. She couldn't get the box open. She couldn't get a ring box open. Michael went over to help her. It was just this 
amazing uh, circus of crazy. Yeah. It was fascinating. And I just wanted to make sure you had somebody there that you could look to for, like, well, I this did is have really Danny, happening. But we could pinch each other. Yeah, this is but happening. But Eliza and I actually, yeah. you know, had some moments, and it was, she was walking up the aisle, it was, she crossed her eyes, you know. <laughs> oh, my because God. Because it was like, wow. Yeah. Your friendship with her throughout the book it, is so touching. And, Thank and you. And kind of sweet and lovely, and, and I, how did she feel about the book? Well, you know, she was, the, this story about the wedding, Yeah, you know, she's the one who came up. She just, is there a way to change the story where we don't mention his name? Yeah. And I said, let's call him the man whose name she'll go and mention. Yeah. And she that, wanted to add, uh, it was her idea to add in, actually. She was like, let's talk about this connection and the eye roll and stuff. She was like, oh, of course, of course. So she, you know, participated in saying, what about this? And she was great in that way. Liza has always been a sounding board for my projects and me for hers. We've worked together on a lot of stuff. Right. So, and she's such a great uh, director and such great vision about things. So she was, you know, actually contributed ideas to, to that story. Right. The other story that she's in, uh, I mean, both of the stories that she in are not really about her. That's the thing. It's about what you were experiencing. She happens this, to be yeah. I mean, like the other. The other story that she's in is about my getting sober. Yes. Um, which happened sort of through the back door because I was visiting Liza in rehab for Family Week, and then going through my own like literally detox and freaking out and all this while she was getting great. <laughs> Um, right, like, but, yeah, she she was getting better, and you were realizing going, that you were... Well, I had never been cut off, and yeah. I mean, I think, I'd known I'd had a problem and things, but I had never really come to those real terms. Yeah. Um, so that story, while she is in it, it happens, it's my friend who I'm visiting who happens to be Liza Minnelli. Yeah. Um, but she... A.K.A. Clara. Right. Yes, that was her um, name in the rehab In the rehab. But she, you know, in the end, she knew when I finally, yeah. like... The, the end of that chapter, when you go back to her and you sort of admit, and I it's say, so I mean, beautiful. And she says, I know. Yeah. And she holds me in her arms. And it's almost in a way of, like, again, there's a poetry in, which I find in everything. Right. You know, when you really sit down to write and you look at it and you realize these things existed in your heart and your head... The, the, the juxtaposition of things that I was asked as her friend to come and be with her during this. Meanwhile, at the end of this chapter, when she says, I know, and I wondered, did she do this on purpose? Was right. she actually servicing me? Was she helping me? Right. Let's uh, get him into this world and yeah, see. Yeah, but I don't know because, you know, that's a very personal, private experience. Yeah. Um, but it is kind of beautiful in the way it happened. What was... What's something that was really different once you were sober? Mm. An experience like going to a <laughs> going to a party or oh, this oh is my what this god. is like. Like, what were those moments where you're like, Everything. oh my god, this is so different than when it used to be? Well, the simplest things. Yeah, I remember going to a party soon after I was sober. You mentioned a party. I was going to a, a party um, at uh, uh, um, Craig Zayden's house. Good friend, comfortable with. Him, all the people there. Yeah. Uh, it was a bit of a showbiz party, but it was comfortable people. It wasn't snooty at all. It was just yeah. totally. And I was newly sober and not drinking, obviously, at social functions and couldn't form words. It was like 
what I would say something, what I heard in my head was like, wow. and, and I felt like that's what everybody was hearing out of my mouth. And I couldn't make sense out of what they were saying. And I felt like I was in this dream in the most basic, just functioning, you know, socializing situation. And I walked out to the driveway and called my sponsor and said, I don't know how to talk. I can't speak without a drink. I don't know how to function. And he said, leave the party. <laughs> go it's home. okay. Yes, go home. How long was this into your sobriety, you think? A few weeks. Yeah. Wow. And did you leave the party? I left the party. There, yeah. I had an exit plan. I mean, yeah. he gave me an exit plan. Yeah. You know, uh, I couldn't read. I yeah. couldn't read out loud. I couldn't... Uh, everything was so emotional and a sort of odd test. And yet there was a simplicity. You know, crisis is so clean. Uh, your house burned down, burns down. You do, you, there's, it's very evident what you have to do. Yeah. Your personal house burns down. It's very simple. And for me, it was surrender. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Yeah. I need someone else to direct me. And I need to follow those directions. That's so clean. And I need to eat a lot of chocolate. Yeah. You know, and smoke a lot of cigarettes. What kind of cho- what's your chocolate of choice? I was eating, I, I stuffed my pockets with Reese's peanut butter cups. Um, and cl- it's a classic. Yeah. Yeah. It, and you need the sugar to replace the right. alcohol sugar. Yeah. Um, but all I had to do was not drink and to be with other alcoholics. Do you remember the moment where something felt different but better? Where you had the party experience, but that, but it was so, sort well, of like, wow, yeah. this is this can be really great. I realized this. Time, I don't think I've ever said this. This is the kind of stuff Danny always hates. It's like I can't believe you shared that. I remember the first time that we had sex, uh, and I was sober, and it was such an emotional experience because I realized I probably hadn't been intimate without drinking. I don't know ever, mm-hmm. ever, maybe ever, and. It was a completely different spiritual, emotional, and very a vulnerable experience. That's beautiful. It was, and it was scary. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know what? It was at the same time as it was horrifying and everything seemed new. I didn't have the tools. Yeah. Uh, uh, but meanwhile, those tools had long stopped working. Right. You know, that made me, the, the things that made me think that I was a sort of acerbic, sexy kind of like, you know, it wasn't really. It was just sort of small and sad and pathetic. That's what my life had become. So um, knowing that I could create and that I could be funny and that I could really listen in a different way and really be present were such great gifts that came fairly quickly. Yeah. Very quickly. But, you know, everything was new. It was from scratch. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Danny. He does something in the book that made me literally want to stand up and cheer. What? In, the, in Joe Allen, the restaurant. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Because um, you know who I imagined? And I don't know if it's the same guy. Danny takes on a, a, like an awful theater critic person. Yes. Um, we can tell the story a little bit more. But there was a, there was a documentary a number of years ago about a Broadway season on... Um, it was the year of Avenue Q and Wicked, and they did a documentary about it. And there were these four sort of journalists featured in it, and they were all awful. They were? Yes, they were awful, and they were 
you know, it was like the whole the year of the this musical. So you would right. see the creation of it and this one, that one, and the Tonys. And, and every once in a while, they'd go back to these journalists and they would be bitchy and talking about the buzz and this one. And, they're all, and I was just like, I want a piano to fall on all of you. <laughs> and so when you told the story and you guys were at Joe Allen... And there was this table being really loud and obnoxious. Right next to ours. And I imagine... Right next to my table. Your Not favorite my, table. Our, our table. Like yes. When, when we came in, that's where we sat. So these were the people I pictured. It may be the same guy, because awful. Well, so, it's, it's, his name is in the book. It's, yeah. It's Michael I just, Riedel. I need Michael to go back. Riedel, Michael Riedel is a very, very powerful uh, theater critic and columnist for The Post. Um, he also is on a show on PBS... And he's really quite a smart guy. Right. Um, and had been kind to me through the years. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he was he was with several other journalists. I, first of all, I didn't even know it was him at the table. Right. Danny he was just a guy at a table. But they were loud and obnoxious. They were sitting behind me. And they were saying things about different people who were present at Joe Allen about this star and that star and just... Just loud. It was kind of like what you experienced watching that show, except it was really it's in happening. a public place. Yeah. And so I shushed. I just turned around, not even seeing who it was. And I was like, shh. And I heard, I've just been shushed by a Stars Search winner. Uh, really loud. And then he started things thinking about me. And then Danny got up and went to him and said, excuse me, could I see you outside? And he said, no, my dinner is coming. And Danny grabbed him around the neck in a like a you know a, like a wrestling stranglehold and dragged him out of Joe Allen backwards to gasp silence and ultimately applause of course um and and I was like oh my god I looked up and I saw that it was Michael Riedel who is a person who can make or break careers right and Tonys and openings and and I'm like oh God, Danny didn't know who it was. Right. Oh my God. And then you think, well, would it have made any difference? Right. Should it have, should it have made any difference? Right. But the truth is, I was totally thinking, okay, I'm going to be directing Pippin in Poughkeepsie. That's right. What, you know, I'm. This is it's all it's over. It's all over for me. Terrified. And then the police were called. It was a whole thing. Michael came back into the restaurant, sat down at the table while Danny stayed outside. And pulled up a chair and started asking me, sorry about that. You know, we were just having a good time. It was all like Gannett Press. It was all like these journalist friends. We are just having a good time. I know we are getting a little out of hand. By the way, and he started asking me gossip about celebrity friends that I knew. And I couldn't even believe it. It's like the Walter that's, Winchell. Talk of, about balls. Like, yeah, that's crazy. But that's what he it does, you know. Yeah. What happened outside? Did Danny tell you? Well, yes, the police came, and okay. um, Danny said, yes, I did indeed do this. We can avoid this whole thing. We're both fine. There were no fisticuffs, you know. Uh, so Is no, there a no part was beaten. As, as, as concerned you were because of the power he wields, was there a part of you that was like, my hero, yeah. like Of course. Did, no one had ever done such yes. a brave thing for me. Yes. Ever. All we were missing was the white horse. I know. It was Truly. amazing. And the thing was... And I do this throughout the book. You know, when I do sort of talk about something that's sort of dirty, show busy, that kind of thing. I mean, I do say, and it's the truth, that chapter, well, the the next day, first of all, our phone, by the time we got home, these were the days of message, you know. Yeah, answering machines. And it was off, there were 30 or 40 messages from all over the, the country. 
everyone had heard within an hour, which just, you know, further yeah. convinced me that my life was over. Yeah. And then the next morning, I got up and threw on some clothes and went to the corner to get the post and look, you know, because I, you know, you get trained also when you know, to look for the, the, the bold face yeah. to see your name. And I, on page six, I'm like, oh, shoot, it's not there. And then I glance down, and the headline below that is Fight Night at Joe Allen. Yeah. Broadway, right. Broadway Fight Night at Joe Allen. <laughs> which Michael wrote. Right. And was about this whole thing about my burly friend. You know, Danny's my little. He's my size. Yeah. yeah. You know, weighs 165 pounds. Damn right he's burly. And, and <laughs> yeah. He felt burly to him he that night. Burly. That means he was fucking scared. Michael was littler. Yeah. Um, but it was an apology of sorts, and yet, and said, I know there's a lot of people who like to clock me in the mouth. Um, uh, but the end of that chapter is also that what you comment on, which is that Jan- Danny was my hero, and that if I had had someone like that in high school, yeah. in junior high, with the bullies, you know, Danny and I, we, maybe I would have had a boyfriend. And I also said, and if I had known Michael Riedel. I'm sure he would have been my best friend. Right. Because we would have both been misfits who were smitten with the theater, and it would have been our connection. Right. I mean, I get him. I actually admire Michael. I yeah. think he's a, he's a good writer. He's smart. Yes, he's a Serbic. Yes, he's his Walter Winchelly kind of thing. And that's what he does. It was out of hand. It turned into a thing. But... You know, it now, turned out great now it's in a the good end. story. When I told Michael that I was in this book, and he was like, "Great, yeah. now it can be immortalized because I've been telling it at dinner parties for years." Great, everyone wins. Yeah, you know, you talk about wishing you had somebody there in high school. The story that you write, as good as it gets, mm. about uh, the was it the guidance counselor or the my psychology teacher? Holy smoke! That that he story. He saved my life. Incredible. He was my psychology teacher. His name was Wayne McDowell. And um, see, here we go again. Now we're not doing the funny. We'll go back to the funny. I'm okay. alternating. The, um, I thought that the segue, okay, the bully short, defender. In short. Yes. I don't want to tell everyone. They have was, to read the book. I want them. The yeah. <clears throat> I, I left home when I was 15 to work with other equally driven and ambitious and talented people. And then <clears throat> for the summer and came back. During that summer, uh, I had fallen in love. And uh, so when I came back to my And it was at like Opryland or somewhere like that? Opryland. Amazing. I love a theme theme park affair. First of all, can I just tell you, we did a, the show was an hour long. Yeah. It had 35 costume changes. It was a live 18-piece orchestra. Yeah. How many shows a day? Three to five. Yeah. I was a former cruise ship guy, so... I this was get it. discipline. I learned how to show. I mean, serious showbiz 101. And you have to save your voice. Live singing. It wasn't a track. It yeah. was all real. You know, and I was a kid and it was romantic. I mean, I had shin splints. I broke toes. I had ripped rotator cuffs. You go on with the show. You are a show business. In show business. I learned so much. But also, on a, on a personal level, I fell in love. Yeah. When I go to those shows, I always like to try to watch and see who's in love with who and who resents and what girl, what girl's in love with that gay guy. And she's right. going to... I put like, out your whole story. I plan it all out. I'm Meanwhile, sure they're doing, they're doing, you know, like, I've got the music in me or whatever exactly. it is. And <laughs> Carnation Plaza Gardens. But it's such a bubble. It is. It's and it's, a, it's so exciting because I remember going to music camp and, like, I was, I was that kid. So you, had, you fell in love. Fell in love. And knew that it was possible. Yeah. Um, and I came back. And so the world that I had sort of put on the mask for, I was not as successful doing. I couldn't really 
shuck and jive in the same way. That you'd be, you'd seen, what, seen truth. what was possible. And so, uh, oh, God. So there, I had a teenage suicide <laughs> attempt. <laughs> uh, the house, his house is burnt down. He tries to kill himself. Ham, slices of a life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A humorous collection of essays and stories. And something amazing happens that, that saves you. But yes. we're not going to tell you. You have to read it to find out what it, it is. Find out. That saves but you. not long but after not that. Not long after when I was... Uh, that's sort of... The, the thing that saved me kept me hanging on for a while longer. But I was still in that place. And then I had a psychology teacher who somehow sent something was not quite right. And just sort of invited me into conversation. Started giving me rides home. Asking me about my summer away. And even though this sort of gnawing, this suicide friend was still present as an option, when, as if, if no one else would show up, I hoped someone else would show up. And I thought maybe it was him. He gave me his home number, said very casually, if you need anything, call me. But I, I knew from the way he taught and the way he thought and the way he taught us to think that maybe he wasn't like the others. Maybe he would get it. Maybe he would get it. And maybe I wouldn't be boiled in a pot of boiling oil, you know, in Bible Belt, Oklahoma. So I took the chance and I called him and we met before school the next day. And I said, uh, we just sat. Listen to the, there's this garage garage the garbage collection day. So sorry about that, folks. No, I followed the garbage truck up. And watched it do its thing. Oh, I'm it's, sorry. it's tedious, isn't it? Well, no, but I was kind of amazed. It's like the first it's, time you've seen a garbage truck. What do not you like I was watching it. No, but like they collect garbage in your neighborhood. They, no, I have a dumpster, so it's oh, it's a different but, machine. Yeah, but I want. I was behind it for a, a few minutes, oh, so sure. I got to watch it really do the thing, and it just I was impressed. Fascinating. It, it? I was just like that guy must be able because there's three things there: the recycling, the blue, and the whatever. He picks the blue one, uh-huh. and boom, grabs it. Dumps it. I just was how muscular it was and how accurate. You should see if you could get him to do a podcast. I think it would be fascinating. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was like, that dude nails it. Because you have to have the peripheral when vision. Cooper was two. I'm fascinated. And three, when we heard the garbage cans, we had to run up the stairs to watch them. Because yeah. he and you a lot were both similar in your fascination. I think it's our butchness that probably <laughs> carries it. the day, that's you know. You Trucks and shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Cooper, a lot of life. Um, anyway, where were we? Oh, yeah, I was killing myself. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, uh, so I sat with this psychology teacher, and he just, uh, we pulled up our student chair desks and faced each other, and he just let silence be. And uh, I said, I'm different. And he said, he laughed, and he said, well, thank God for that. And I finally summoned the courage and I said, I'm gay. And I told him everything. I told him about Scott, the, the boy I'd fallen in love with. I told him about the second all. I told him uh, everything. And I waited for his judgment. I waited, you know, and it never came. He just listened. And I write in the book, he listened with an intensity that most people have only when talking. Mm-hmm. And then he said, there is nothing wrong with you. 
And, you know, those are the words that I think anybody, it's not just gay, it's any teenager, it's anybody who feels outside, who feels different, who anybody who grows up, we need to hear there is nothing wrong with you. You know, and it's the words that I had wanted anyone to say. Uh, you know, in those days, there were no role models. There was no character on television. There was no book. There was no newscast. My mother, my father, a preacher, Scott, Walter Cronkite, anyone. Yeah. To say there is nothing wrong with you. It's yeah. so simple. And then he pulled out an American psychology journal that had shown me that a few years, very few years before, that homosexuality had been declassified as a mental disorder. Right. Because you'd done your homework. On I that. had been researching. I'd been going to libraries yeah. secretly in the night under the covers, taking notes, and found lots of evidence to support that it, I was indeed mentally disturbed and wrong. Um, and then I started arguing with him and taking out my notes and quoting the Bible, the ones that I had memorized to show me that I was damned, because it couldn't be this simple. I couldn't have gone through these years of anguish for him to just say, no, no, it's been declassified. No, no, there's nothing wrong with I had to justify the turmoil. And he said something to me that, that changed me. Not all at once, because I had to go back and relearn it again. But he said, Sam, you know you can't pick and choose and snatch pieces away from yourself and expect to be the same person. It's all one thing. You have to like the bigger picture or not. You have to celebrate it all. If you like yourself, if you're a good person, you have to celebrate because it's the traumas that inform us as much as the good things. And he said, I would hate, he said, where do you think your talent comes from and your humor and your creativity and your compassion, mm -hmm. all of that stuff. You can't pull out pluck and be the same thing. And he said, if I were you, I wouldn't change any of who you are or any of what got you here. And he made me promise that if I ever again decided to kill myself, that I would call him first and I promised. And I said, I just want to be happy. And he said, do it. It's hard. He said, sometimes the people with the most to give are the, have the most to overcome. Be a good person. You know, choose it. I wish we could clone that guy. He sounded can amazing hear, at that time. At that time. Can I hear, I'll tell you the, the, the beauty of it. So I've written the book. The book is published. I'm out promoting it. I go to... Oh, to shit. In oh, fuck. I okay. called him and told him I hadn't spoken to him in 30 years. Well, I, I was wondering I if he was even alive. I yeah. tracked him down and I said, I've written this chapter. You're in it. I don't know if you remember this, but you saved my life. And he said, yes, of course I remember. But he didn't, we never know the impact, the full impact that we have on someone, you know? Mm-hmm. He said, yes, but I always knew you would be okay. And I said, oh, but if you don't know, I wouldn't, I might not have been. Right. If not for you. And I said, I'm coming through Tulsa to promote the book and I'm doing this piece and I would love to send you a copy of the book and I'd love for you to come. And he came. I'm sorry, this is really... No. And I performed this story about him with him in the audience. How did you get through it with him there? You know, like much like I'm doing right now. <laughs> and then I saw him after. And I was able to 
hold him and thank him. And he cried and I cried. And, you know, he's a teacher. He is... He's in a position, he's still a teacher. Yeah, well, because you imagine if, if he was that intuitive with you, he probably, there was probably a kid the next year, and the next Somebody year. Somebody else in a different way. And what, what I was reading. they make no money, yeah. and they go in, and they affect these lives, and I got to say thank you. Yes. That was a big deal for me. Yeah, because I thought, I, I was going to ask what happened to him, and I thought you might say he's passed away or no. whatever. There he was. Amazing. And also what he said was intuitive, but he had arguments. He had science. Like he... He backed it up. If you could have written what somebody would say to you in that moment, as an adult, go back and script it and say, this is what you're going to say to me when I come in. Right. He did that and then some. Beautiful. And I say in the book also, I might have wept in his arms, but he didn't offer them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He didn't. This was not... And you know, I also have thought about since then... And even when I was writing it, because I wanted to be careful that, that the reader didn't get the wrong impression, I was so vulnerable that if this had been a different person, a, a, a male authority figure who could have taken advantage of me, who would have taken me under his wing, yeah, under the auspices of seeing this confused misfit gay kid, yeah, I was perfect prey. You were ripe. I was ripe prey. Right. Under the wrong circumstances. And to have had this man who didn't even hug me at the end. Yeah. Was a gift. Yeah. <clears throat> it was when you write beautifully about it. it and I'm Thank so you. happy that you got to have that moment with him. Yes. Now, what's interesting also about the, uh, the Opera Land boyfriend is that it was, a, it was mutual and it was paradise. And then it was ended. Then That's it ended. The, are you, do you, is he around? Do you, so he died. I'm so sorry. He died. Um, he, uh, I did go back to Opryland. I quit school permanently and went back to Opryland because they had offered us a TV special, a tour, some other stuff. And so I basically finished high school through correspondence courses and I went back and this time, uh, cause the first time Scott and I shared an apartment with two other guys. This time we got our own apartment and it was in the days of of still, even within this group of people who knew everything, we still didn't talk about it. It was still coded and veiled in secrecy. And we had these two twin beds that we pushed together at night and separated them in the morning. And the title of that book, or that chapter, is um, um, As Good As It Gets. Because at that time, I like, I could deal with this. Even if it was in this kind of... criminal uh, secretive clandestine clandestine sad sort of then I can do I could do this yeah and then the next chapter because the stories are not in chronological order is called better it's the last chapter of the book which is about my relationship and marriage to Danny but it's it's about the adoption of our child and getting to experience in this little single lifetime, this time in America, when those, that was not remotely fathomable, not even imaginable. It was so not a part of the remote possibility. The biggest possibility was to live clandestinely. Right, the twin bed so, thing. Right. Yeah. And now I'm married legally with rights and a voice and a pulpit and a child. And you it's, go to the farmer's market and nobody cares. Yeah, don't tell that part. <laughs> okay. 
Oops. No, that's okay. No. That's a, uh, yeah, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's a huge deal and it's not a huge deal at the same time. Well, the fact that it's not a huge deal now is a huge is what's deal. a huge deal. And it is still a huge deal. I live in a, in a community in Los Angeles, which has been called by Forbes magazine, the hippest community in America. Thank you. So I live in a diverse, liberal world where our kids, it's literally nothing to. Right. In the school. Yeah. It's nothing. And it's not like, I mean, Cooper was the only two dad kid in his kindergarten. It's not like, you know, that all of a sudden that the reverse has happened. Right. But it's nothing to the kids. Yeah. They don't, they don't think about it twice. That's awesome. Yeah. It's funny when you talk about your Opryland affair. I was a music camp counselor and there was a guy there and we became very close and I was too afraid to do anything. Mm. And, uh, I look back and I know that there was something there and it was on, but neither of us had Could the courage. If I, if I could facility. go back, I would, I would kiss him and I know exactly when it would have been. And I didn't drink. So I never had that thing of like, well, right. what happened? The freedom. Right. Yeah. So, but, but it's that similar thing. And the other thing though was I never felt that bad about being gay because I, I liked the creative parts of myself and I always got that they were somehow. You knew they were connected. I somehow got it. I'm not sure how, but I always connected it all up. Like what you're, what I, you're like, if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have. This. I knew I got that for some reason. I mean, but not see, that it was no, always but easy, but this. I, but I, did I don't think that get that for about your creativity. If I may, this is just my opinion. Yeah. Your creativity was not because you were gay. Gay doesn't make a person creative. Your being an oppressed person is what made you. I, need to express yourself to have your, to own something. In other words, look at black music. Look at the soulfulness in black music, the cry in black music. Look at the humor that comes from the, the Jewish. I mean, you look it's at where an they oppressed group, stuff. an oppressed group, and it has to find light. Right. It has to find purpose. It has to find ownership. Our creativity does not come uh, – my creativity does not come from the fact that I'm gay. There's a hell of a lot of people who are not gay who are creative. Yeah. Who sing well or are funny or write well or make you cry or do whatever. It's, but there is something in their childhood and maybe some of it's DNA, but in their childhood that is oppressed, that is separatist, that is something that made them need to find a survival tool and they chose a positive solution in something creative. Yeah. My thing Does was, that make sense? yeah, I always knew I was different than the world around me. My brothers right. were into hunting and fishing and all that stuff. Oh, and I, I always knew, I never felt, I know, I never felt that like oppressed or I, I, I had some bullying, not a ton, but I did know I'm there. I'm, I'm different than my family. I'm different. I'm different period. And that's, I think sort of led to the creativity and stuff like that. Where, but you grew up where? A uh, small town called Holbrook, Arizona. And so there wasn't the, there wasn't the bible thing? Well, I was raised Mormon. And there's, there was some of it, Jeez. but it wasn't, my father wasn't Mormon, my mother was, so we were sort of, there was a sort of like, we are kind of half-assed about it. Mm-hmm. I, um, so I never had that I'm going to hell thing. You didn't? Not that much. Oh. See, Not, I, I never hell, believed it. I had the, I didn't ever believe it. I had the going to hell thing, but I didn't, I didn't see how it was true. And I also, I couldn't understand how you could pray to a God 
to heal someone, but this all-knowing, all-powerful God wasn't the same person responsible for that person being sick in the first place. None of it made sense to me. Yeah, it didn't add up. And so, you know, and then it's sort of finding some sense of spirituality and and making it up myself from my life to have something... You know, in, in my life, I, what I pray for is just the ability to sort of get through. If you're going through a difficult time, I pray for your to find the tools and the people and the community to get through. I don't pray for your leg to be restored. I don't if you get chopped off. I don't think that's going to happen. I pray for how you deal with not having a leg. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, strength and courage and yeah. faith and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, fortitude. Now you write about. Um, the post nine eleven and it has and, and the being asked to sing on the Oprah special and all I we're going to touch on that because I want people to go read the book but there was a moment where Oprah looked you in the eyes and maybe grabbed your shoulders and said you can do this yeah. and I always thought wouldn't that be an amazing hologram to have that that you could just dial up on your iPad and an app Oprah comes out and says you can <laughs> do, do this because when Oprah says that Sarah! you can do this. You could do this. It's true. You could fucking do it. Because she is... That should be an app. It should be an app. A hologram of Oprah saying, you can do this. (laughs) Yes. And you had that happen. You can do this. And to learn where and how and why that happened, you have to read Ham. You do. Yeah. But I was very fortunate to have a place to... And and the very short part of it... Sure. Is I moved to Los Angeles from New York City the day before 9-11. Yes. And then felt communityless. Yes, it happened to everyone, but it happened and to like you had abandoned your city. Like I abandoned my another burning house. <laughs> exactly, um, <laughs> exactly. Um, Shit. And so, uh, and the the sense of helplessness, yeah. and then being asked to be on this show gave me a sense of purpose. Gave me mm-hmm. the way to use what I do yeah. and sing, and um, and then the experience after. With Oprah, well, first of all, because the circumstances were very different, and I had done her show before, but. Because of the circumstances and the grieving and what we were trying to figure out and helping each other, this was a community thing. Right. We were like, you know, we had dinner at her house. I was asked to fly back with her on her plane. It was a very personal, emotional experience that was really extraordinary. Yeah. She's amazing. And you did a special, uh, Where Are They Now special? I ha- it hasn't aired yet. <gasps> How exciting. I hope so. I haven't seen it. What was it like to shoot it? Great. Yeah. You know, we talked about the book. We talked about my live career. They... It, I don't let Cooper on camera very much. Yeah. But that, I so trust them. Yeah. And Oprah's people. Yeah. And Oprah, Oprah, it's Oprah. It's Oprah. So, <laughs> get, in, get the get into air and makeup. It's so, Oprah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. So they shot Cooper and us playing handball and us talking to Cooper and us being in the kitchen and hanging out. And he was very excited yeah. about that. Now, my friend Scott, who listens to this podcast. Um, Hi, Scott. His favorite chapter in the book is the chapter Liver. Uh-huh. Because I think I think a lot of us relate to it. You know, when Thank you're you. up, yes. when you're trying to be creative and trying to make your way. And um, how would you ex- explain the concept of liver and how you use that term in your life? Well, I am such a ridiculously eternal optimist. I right. can find light where there is nothing but muck and right. dirt. And so I've had to create what I call the liver law. Right. Which is, if it looks like liver and it smells like liver, it's liver. You can throw on a little bacon, a little onions, but it's still liver. (laughs) Right. And so the first, I don't know, five or six pages of the chapter in the book called Liver is about a washing machine. 
right. that has so many bells and whistles and that I am entranced by this washing machine. State of the it art. It sings, it plays songs, mm-hmm. it bears, it doesn't use water, it uses magic, it does all these things, but the clothes are not clean and they're wrinkled. And it's me still, and me watching him with popcorn, it's like the lights come up, it's this magical thing, but it doesn't fucking right. work but you're gonna in your head you're gonna I'm fucking gonna make it work yeah. I, want, I invite people over to come and see it you know <laughs> uh, bring your laundry um, right and this is sort of a, a metaphor for my life in relationships in work in show business especially in show business especially in show are, business people are always lying to you and offering it's so things. hard and then you see something a project a person a situation start to deteriorate and you keep clinging to that little yeah. That little thing. Show business in itself is liver. <laughs> isn't it? Because everything says, run for the hills, get out. Yeah. And then this carrot drops. It does. This little piece of something happens. Because I'm reading the chapter and I'm thinking, okay, I've had a lot of those things where you, you go in with the highest hopes and you do the best, you do everything you can, and it just goes to shit. But what's the alternative? Right. What's the alternative? Just not reality, try, but try, not trying. But do you know no. what I mean? Because I feel like if I didn't go for what ends up being liver, there would no. There's, that's true. And then the, the, the sometimes chapter, it doesn't feel like there's I nothing about, else. I and, cannot. I cannot take out. Yeah, I've had to use the barometer because I need to get out. I need to get out of certain yeah. things. I need to recognize it and move on to something that's going to provide more peace right. and happiness. You Instead can't become banging, more. You can't become more selective. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. However. If I remove, if I if I if I numb myself, or try to protect myself from the disappointment, then I'm also taking myself out from the, the from the high and the joy of it. It's all equal. Yeah. It's all in proportion. It's like you know, uh, this is not in the book, but it's like, uh, and I'm not trying to be here. I am chipper again. When someone dies, when someone yeah. dies and you're grieving, well, that is in proportion to your love for them. You can't take away one without the other. Right. And so there's this, you, you have to, the yin and the yang, the equality of it. It's, it's our life experience. So I don't want to be numb. I don't want to not feel the disappointment. Right. I just don't want to cling to it when it's long past its, its yeah. time. What's something you know now that you wish you had known when you were starting out in show business? Either about the business or about yourself or about how things work or... Well, first of all, it's called show business. Yeah. It's not called show art. It's not called show fun. Yeah. And, you know, when we all get into this, it's really, truly, purely about creating. Yeah, it's Opryland. as you go through, you realize that, you know, 99% of it is the business. Yeah. Is, is the, the getting through, the disappointment, the, the, the connection of it, the, and the 1% is the, is the the performing of it, the thrill of it. I could be in rehearsal the rest of my life and be happy. I love the creation of it. Right. Actually, it's probably not 99%, but maybe close. Yeah. They don't teach you that. Um, uh, and that is, that is true. And so that's what ultimately weeds out a lot of people is nobody ever said that part. Yeah. You know? Um, but I don't know. I'm not kind of, I'm not one who really looks back on wanting to ever change anything. I've made some huge mistakes and I have regrets about decisions that I've made or people that I did business with probably because of the liver thing. Right. Um, but you, it's again, it's, it's like the, 
Mr. McDowell said, you know, at any point in your life, you have to look at the, your life as the whole, that you are the amalgam of your experiences, yeah. not just the happy ones. I have a friend who says that think of your life as a song, and maybe these notes are really hard, mm-hmm. but you love the song. You like, yeah. It's a great song. Right. Maybe this verse is a bitch right now. Yeah, maybe you haven't warmed up. <laughs> you haven't warmed up, you got to vocalize. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think if I, if I could know something, I think I would, there are things that I took more personally than I probably should have. In relationships, if somebody, if it didn't work out, something was wrong with me, oh, yeah. or if I didn't get this job, it was, you know, whereas a lot of it, it's not always about you. It's about other things. That's true, there's a lot of, well, I think I learned that early because I was, at a very early age, I was on both sides of the table. Yeah. I wrote a sitcom when I was like 22 years old. And wrote the first couple of seasons of it. And so I was auditioning people. Yeah. So I knew that it wasn't because that person was bad. In fact, that person might have been the best person. It's because they needed to look like the, the brother. Or right. they needed to... There was a million other age. things. There was a million other things. Also, I think I was so full of myself that I never thought... I never bought into that, that uh, show business thing of like, my type. Oh, we're the same type. I'm like... You're not my... I'm, I'm my own type. I can play Helen Keller. I can play Helen Keller. <laughs> you were hell-bent on playing Helen Keller. When I was five. When you were five. I saw no reason why I should not. <laughs> I related to her. I understood her. I understood... She had... She was in touch with a certain human yeah. condition that most people weren't, and I knew yeah. that I was. When did you know you could sing? And not just sing, but you could sing. Sing. Yeah. Was there a moment where you're like, oh, I'm not just a kid in the choir. I'm like... I can do this thing. I, I, I don't know. I don't know that I ever thought of it as something. I knew that it, that it got me indoors. <clears throat> I knew that it made people like me. Yeah. There was a period in my life where I didn't want to meet anybody until they had heard me sing. Because then I thought, oh, then they'll like me. Or they'll at least respect me. Yeah. Um... I think as a kid... When would that have been? That would have been... As a teenager or as like as an as adult? A, after I left Oklahoma, yeah. certainly. Probably in, in college, for sure. Yeah. I, it was important for them to hear me sing. I was so grateful that the way we introduced ourselves in musical theater workshop and in theater classes and in th- was we got up and sang a song. Right. And I thought, okay, at least they'll know that about me. Right. Um, I knew it was my secret weapon. Amazing. You know? What's your, this is a weird question. It may, it may, you may spark to it or not. What's your relationship to your voice? Do you feel like it's part of you or a gift or something? I think that's changed throughout the years. I do feel like it's a part of me. I think it's something I've taken for granted sometimes. It's something that I'm, I'm definitely grateful for and is a gift, but it's also something that you work for. Yeah. You know, and, and ultimately the, the, the sad truth is it's just a little tiny dime sized muscle. Yeah, that um, I have had the benefit of being able to use, and I know how it works technically, and it gets to express. I get to. I get. Here's the gift: I get to produce what I hear in my head. Right. The emotions of it. I look at a dancer who can kick their leg up by their head. No matter how hard I try, my leg will not go up by my head. Yeah. They through work through biology and through whatever different reasons can put their head, their leg up by their head. I kind of get to put my leg up by my head with my voice. Incredible. So that's the gift. And I, as a star search fan and I, I I have all your records and like back then, I think it was the power of the voice, but there was an unabashedness about the emotion 
Yeah. So it was not holding anything back. And I think no. that's what I connected to. Is that something you remember feeling as singing? Were you able to just let everything out? Well, can I tell you? So Star Search was when I was 21 and 22. Yeah. At that point, and that's a short, that's a young kid. Yeah. But at that point, I had been gone from home for six years. I had fallen in love. I had tried to kill myself. Yeah. I had uh, had a life that had, I had already written musicals and done things and sort of put myself out there. You weren't Carrie Underwood fresh off the farm. No. I had met Jerry Blatt and worked with him for years who taught me how to be truthful on the stage. And when I look at the songs that I chose, because in Star Search, as opposed to American Idol or the voice of different, they tell them what to sing or give them a choice from a catalog. We got to choose anything. I did original songs. I did obscure songs. I did things that nobody had ever heard of. But they were all reflective. As we, as artists, what do we do? We choose songs right. that reflect where we are. Look at the choices. I shall be released. It's my turn. God bless the child. These were all songs that were about being set free, about being rescued. And I chose these songs probably ignorantly because I didn't think, oh, this is what this means. Oh, now they're going to think I'm this. They just were truthful to me. And I sang them truthfully. And my eyes got a little teary. And, you know, I look at them now and they're large and over the top, but they were authentic for this 21, two-year-old. And unabashed. That's unabashed. What, that's what I they were love about them. Has Cooper seen videos of that? I don't think so. Yeah. Something else that was weird, this, this has nothing to do with anything, but somebody pointed out to me, and I went back and looked and noticed, is when the key, ch- the, when the key change happened, which there was always a key change. Yeah, and everyone always clapped. My eyes changed color. Eyes became greener. That's like this amazing. Weird biological thing happened. Uh, Maybe it's can we up. watch that on YouTube? Yes, that's amazing. They changed. Something happened, and I think there was some sort of subconscious effect with that too. It's like, oh, he can change his eyes. Yes. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> well, did the gay did the gay ever come up in that Star Search world backstage? Mentioned? Behind? No, God, no. no. Yeah, it's never ever mentioned. Yeah, it was never ever ever mentioned ever ever. Yeah. Like after that, when my first record company was Motown, yeah, the words were never mentioned. It was just Sam doesn't talk about his private life. So and there were never meetings about it or anything. It was just there might have been meetings, but not with you. Me, yeah, but I was told what I could and could not say. Wow. And I took women to the Grammys and yeah. things like that. Wow. And I accepted that as part of, you know, I, I romanticized, even though it wasn't funny or romantic, that I thought of it as. You know, I was always enamored with, like, the MGM studio system. Yeah. And I was like, these are the rules that I have to play to be a part of this business, and this is okay. Right. You know, I'm still wearing funky clothes. I'm seeing like I sing. I'm representing myself. But, yes, I can This is part of the game. I can this. I mean, even at the George Michael. I mean, was he... Nobody said anything. Yeah. He was was with that backup singer, that crazy girl. And you look at those videos, and you're like, what? Yeah. But that was the time. George Michael. Yeah. 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 Um, Most vivid memory of Ed McMahon. Wow, I, it would be, uh, he was like a grandfather to me. Yeah. And uh, and we stayed in touch for year, forever. Yeah. But I think my most vivid memory of him was I hadn't seen him 
I had done Star Search, and then I did this song, this show called You Write the Songs that I kind of did as a favor from some of the same producers. Yeah. And I saw him there, but I came back. There was a Star Search reunion. And it had been a couple of – a year or so. And I saw him in his dressing room going to mine and just – you know, he was twice as tall as me. Yeah. And the way he just held me in my arms like a grandfather because Star Search – I was so grateful to Star Search and so grateful to him. And he was grateful to me because they had this person who had sort of put the show on the map, which gave them, helped propel them with a formula. Yeah, and credibility. And credibility. But it was so personal. He was a mensch. And he, you know, he was from the old guard too. Yeah. And yet he totally embraced me. Because I had no... Not as an oddball. Yeah. I don't have any connection with him. I like the show. But if you could have said, oh, he was the hugest dick and whatever. Or I I really had no association of it. He was the real deal. Yeah. Now, we've been talking for about an hour. We have. Yeah. And you probably have to wrap up soon. I do. I have to pick up my kid from school and stuff. All right. Cool. Can I just check my list and see see what... uh, Because I could talk to you all day. Um, How long is the ca- do you edit this into something? It's, it it, the great thing about podcasts is they all go about an hour. So okay. we're, we're cool. Um, I just want to tell you that I love all your records, but one of my favorites was a song called The Rescue. Mm. And um, when I was working on cruise ships, I had a chart made of it. You did? I did. And I would sing it in like a little bar there. And then I remember making a demo of it with what, with our with our... Um, music director in a cabin, like a little cabin. I was singing really? in the, yeah, I have to see if I have it. It's on cassette, but That's I just, you know, song. it's so beautiful and, um, you sang it so beautifully and it's, it's one of those, great lyric. it's a great lyric and I was on a ship at the time and it was oh, so wow, moving yeah. and yeah, I just wanted to sh- give you a shout out for that and Thank tell you, you for that. telling me that. Yeah, it I loved it. It's a powerful song. It's beautiful. And then, um, you work with Todd Schroeder all the time, I right? I two hours ago. I did a show once with Todd Schroeder as a musical director, and me and my friend Jennifer Sehe at this place called The New York Company. Uh It was in Silver Lake. It's Uh long, long, long gone. But he was so fun and so great, and I always see him pop up here and there, and just brilliant. He's been my music director for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, we work together on everything. He's doing ham. He's like my my musical soulmate, and he's like my brother, and I love him, and uh, he's the best. Um. I just want to say, go buy Sam's book, Ham, or you can do the audible thing, the reading of it. I read it, yeah. Did you get emotional when you're reading it, or was it such a long... I've done audiobooks, and it's it's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah. Several days of a long yeah. time. And at the end of it, I was kind of gobbledygooky. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there were a couple of moments. But I, you know, I, I tried to... to be a professional. Be a professional. Exactly. Well, if you read it, you're going to get stories about Aretha Franklin and Donny Osmond, and uh, you talk about your family and growing mm-hmm. up. Um, what about being a father has surprised you? Do you like how yeah, I just I, kind of went? I'm every, really everything. <laughs> yeah. I, whatever I could have imagined, it is so much more. It is so much bigger. The fear is so much bigger. The joy is so much bigger. But it's. The, the, I did not know it was possible for me to love this much. It's so beyond me. And it has, you know, a life in show business and also getting the, the uh, blessing of things actually being about me for a long time. <laughs> um, that it's not, that it's really about him. My, my, my first moment of every day, my last moment of every day is about this child and give, making him feel safe and loved and putting a good citizen into the world. 
It's the most extraordinary thing ever. I recommend it highly to everyone who, because it makes you your best person. You can't just be a good dad when you're with them. You have to do it alone when you're in your car when you really want to run over someone. You have to embody being your best person. Yeah. Because that's what they know and feel. Yeah. So it's made me better. Do you have any, uh, like a motto or words that you live by or something you think about? That's Don't like, fuck it up! <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good one. Thank you. All right, so go buy Ham. It's available and everywhere fine books are sold. The paperback's coming out soon. Watch for Sam on Oprah. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been thank a real you. pleasure to talk to you. You too. And, you um, well. yeah. and thank you. All right, it's my pleasure. And I want to hear your, your the rescue. I'm going to find it on okay. cassette. <laughs> my, I thought for what a... we play it on? I know. <laughs> exactly. I have no idea. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. Check Thank us out you. next time. This has been Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. Bye-bye.